step into the wondrous realm of Exavalon, where mythical beings and magical creatures coexist in a world of enchantment and wonder. From humans to undead, elves to dwarves, knights to pirates, and orcs to barbarians, Exavalon is a diverse land filled with fascinating characters and legends. However, a grave danger looms over the land as the nefarious necromancers seek to usher in an era of darkness and despair. The stakes are high, but there is still hope, for heroes have risen to the call, ready to face a threat head-on and restore peace to the land. As you venture forth into Exavalon, you will witness breathtaking landscapes and experience unforgettable adventures. You will encounter dragons, demons, and other formidable foes, as well as make friends with loyal companions and wise mentors. Join us on this epic quest as we strive to defeat the necromancers and preserve the magic and wonder of Exavalon. From epic battles to heartwarming moments of bravery and friendship, Exavalon is a world like no other, and we invite you to be a part of it. Welcome to the Knights of Exavalon. Tell me this tale, Knight, and be quick about it. How did you get here? Do you have a boat? I said you could tell me your tale. I did not say you could pester me with your questions. Now begin your tale or I will kill you right now. Which will it be? My tale begins ten years ago, in the Ghost Maple Forest. I was sent to the Ghost Maple Forest to investigate the disappearance of children from both Fellwood Village and White Pine Village. It had to be the Barbarians. Slatravel is but less than a day's journey from there. That is a reasonable thought. However, Barbarians do not kidnap babies or kids. The barbarians kidnap young adults and adults who they can turn into slaves right away. They do not want to wait years for a slave to be of value. I suppose you are right. Please continue. My first stop was Fellwood Village, where I met with a local priest of the Church of the One True God. The villagers were terrified. The majority of them were hiding in their houses when I entered the village. I am used to the whispers. People are always trying to figure out what I look like under my helmet. Each person wants to be the first to see my face. A few jealous men and women will begin to whisper about how I am some sort of wicked abomination. But those words always remain a whisper. All are too afraid to say anything to my face. At the church, I met with Priest Bosch. He had informed me that about a month ago, Children started to go missing. At first, it was children wandering too far into the woods. After the villagers found the torn apart remains, they assumed that the children had been eaten by bears or wolves that live in the woods. When children started to go missing from their homes in the middle of the night, the villagers feared something more wicked was at play. I had asked the priest if anyone saw something in the middle of the night. That is when his face went white, and he started to nervously fidget on the church pew. I pressed him to tell me what he knew. Not telling me would only cause delays, and might result in more children going missing. Whatever was taking the children 
had developed a taste for young human blood. This could be a witch, a necromancer, a werebeast, a giant spider, or even a demon. No other forest monster would be able to lure or take a child from their home. Finally, with tears in his eyes, the priest told me that a man had seen a tall, bald woman with milky white skin walk into the village. She wore a black cloak, and a small oak tree was walking next to her. The woman and tree went up to a house where a little five-year-old boy lived. The man watched as a woman and tree walked into the house and left with the little boy. The man wanted to rescue the child, and he was about to run outside, but that is when the woman looked at him. She had black eyes that caused the man to cower in fear. So he watched as the woman in tree took the boy into the woods. When I asked the priest if I could talk to the man, he told me it was too late. The man had gone completely mad. The only thing he does now is rock himself and mumble about the witch and the tree. I told the priest that the man was telling the truth. There was no rescuing those kids, but we could prevent more kids from going missing. I asked the priest if he heard about the missing kids from White Pine Village, which he replied that he had not. No surprise, the Ghost Maple Forest separates the two villages. There would be no need to ever visit each other. Still, I would have liked to know what happened there before venturing into the forest. When the priest pressed me to tell him what wicked creature had taken the children, I told him it was best he did not know. Being that close to their domain and hearing their name can cause you harm and put your life in danger. The Dead Tree Sisters Yes, I am not surprised that an elf has heard of them. Did you ever run into them before? No. I have only heard of them. They are wicked things that both elves and orcs fear. Yes, they are. I left immediately for White Pine Village. If I hurried, I would get there before sunset and would be able to set a trap for the dead tree sisters and their tree race. As I entered the forest, all seemed well. I had been through the Ghost Maple Forest hundreds of times before and knew exactly the path to take to avoid the dead tree. The dead tree was the source of the dead tree sister's power. It was best to be avoided until I was ready to purge a place of its evil. The first path I took should have led me right to White Pine Village, yet up ahead there was a dead tree. The forest instantly went silent. I turned around. This was not a place I wanted to be after dark. I assumed I had taken a wrong path, probably distracted. I ran until I was back to the fork in the path. This time, I made sure that I took the northeast path, which would bring me to the White Pine Village. The sun was starting to set as I walked up that trail. It had turned completely dark when I finally made it to the edge of the forest. Up ahead in the clearing was a fire and lanterns. The glowing light was drawing me in. The moment I walked into the clearing, I knew something was wrong. I was back at the dead tree. I stepped back into the forest, careful to remain in the shadows. Standing around the fire were a bunch of women, 
some naked, while others had on loose robes. I knew instantly that these were the Dead Tree Sisters. There were too many of them for me to deal with, especially on this night of the full moon. The sisters were chanting something wicked in a foreign tongue that not even I knew. It sounded like the accursed tongue of demons. The chanting soon turned into singing. The sisters were all staring down at something large. I crept closer to see what they were looking at. Horror overtook me as the words of their unholy song became clearer. I caught the words, feast, decay, soul, curse, and darkness. But nothing prepared me as a large item the sisters were surrounding became clearer. It was the head of the great dragon Israel that decayed, who I slayed over 15 years ago. I crawled closer. I needed to see why the sisters were staring at Israel. I crawled until I came to the edge of the trees. I was so close to the dead tree sisters that I could have reached out and grabbed them. That is when I saw and heard what they were staring at. The grand dead tree sister, Amaran, was feeding upon Israel. The only reason why she would be eating the dead body of Israel is to gain the power of decay. With the power of decay, they could send a plague upon Exavalon, eventually destroying it. I had to kill Amaran. Once she took the first bite, she had already gained the power of decay. The more she ate, the stronger her decay would be. Before I could pull out my sword and charge Amaranth, her demon tree, Blackthorn the Cruel, grabbed me with his branches. He pinned my arms to my side, out of the reach of my sword. Even if I could have reached my sword, it wouldn't have done much good, for the dead tree sisters were all looking at me with hatred in their eyes. Amaranth continued feasting upon his Israel as the sisters argued about what they should do with me. But then Amaranth stopped eating, got up, looked at me and said, Dear sisters, I will decay Sir Reginaldi's body with my new powers. We must thank him for killing his Israel, for without Sir Reginaldi, I would never have the powers of decay. <sighs> Is that it? That does not explain how you ended up here. No, that is but the beginning. But I need to rest. I'm having a hard time staying awake. No. Finish your story. Why? Neither of us are going anywhere. I will continue the tale when I wake up. Welcome to the History of Exavalon. Tale 2. Datula, the Forever Maiden. Hello, and welcome back to my library. I am Aldor the Wise one of many historians of Exavalon. Today, I have a tragic tale of lust, unrequited love, revenge, and death. As a historian of Exavalon, I present to you the history 
of Tatula the Forever Maiden. Today's tale begins in the age of the church in the year 1980 CE, called the Tragedy of Tatula the Forever Maiden. The tale begins in the village of Draugrfold, and the frozen lands of the country of Hafgrimsfjora. Before we talk about Datula, we must tell you how the people came to inhibit it, Draugrfold. In the year 1900 CE, there was a dissension between three barbarian tribes living in Slatavakr. These tribes were the Strungerlund, Frefstensudr, and Julskand. The reason for the dissension was a disagreement between the three chiefs in regards to how the barbarians should be led. The Strungerland believed that non-barbarians should be slaves, but only tortured or killed if they were disobedient. The Frestensender believed that all non-barbarians should be their playthings to torture and kill as they please, and that the weak barbarians should be their slaves, while the Julskind believe that no humans should be made into slaves, and that a barbarian should keep what they earn, excluding human life. The three chiefs, knowing that the only solution was for the three tribes to separate, as any attempt to gain control of the other tribes would only result in a long, bloody war. The Strungerland stayed in Slatavakr, while the Frustinsinder journeyed into the Stjarnsvinger Mountains, eventually settling in Envigir on the shores of the frozen abyss. Leaving the Julskind who sailed across the Friskerfold Lake, settling Draugrfold. In the lands of Draugrfold was a necromancer called Verlaka, the demon wolf. Nobody knows how old Verlaka is, as his only companions are his undead wolves. Verlaka despised barbarian who killed wolves. He would seek revenge by killing and reanimating the barbarians to either feed his undead wolves or to serve as guardians of living wolves. The Strungerland and the Threstsinzer barbarians tried to convince the Julskind to stay away from those accursed lands, but they were determined to live there. They dared not venture further into the mountains and wanted to be close to the Fiskerfold Lake, as fishing was their chief means of attaining food. The Zuzkind reasoned that if they didn't kill or harm any wolves, then Verlaka would leave them alone. And they were correct. Verlaka kept a close eye on them, but as long as they didn't harm the wolves, he allowed them to live there in peace. The barbarians of Jogafold flourished in those lands, fishing the lake and hunting the elk, always offering a portion of their meat to the wolves to keep peace with Verlaka. The barbarians lived there in peace for the next 80 years. Not only did the original barbarians die, but so did all those who were alive in the great barbarian migration. Still, the barbarians did not wage war against each other. That was until the spring of 1980 CE. Among the Julskin barbarians was a beautiful 16-year-old girl named Datula. Datula was often found fishing on the Friskerfold Lake. Datula was a prize that every eligible bachelor sought after. One strong barbarian named Tigerger eventually won the right to marry Datula. Tigerger, along with other barbarians, went on a journey to the dangerous waters of the North Tricona Sea to kill a sea terror snake that was eating all of the fish in the Fiskerfold Lake. 
Sea terror snakes are not large creatures, but are just as deadly as giant sea monsters. They are long, slender, and they can move their head from one end to the other. These creatures are faster than a boat and can swim miles in a mere minute. They have powerful jaws and razor-sharp teeth that can shred anything it bites. Even if you cut off its head, it can switch to the other end of its tail. Your only hope in killing one is to try to cut off both ends at the same time or rip out its heart, which is well protected. Sea terror snakes prefer cold waters and can be found in lakes when they freeze over, offering even more protection from prying humans. Each barbarian woman gets to decide what a barbarian man must do to earn her hand. Tradition calls for an act of courage, usually in killing some troll, a beast, or monster. For only a strong, courageous barbarian can protect and provide for his wife and family. Of all the barbarian men to go after the sea terror snake, Tigerger was the only one to come back. But he did not come back whole, for he had his left arm bitten off by the sea terror snake. The snake took his arm, but Tigger took the snake's heart, earning his right to marry Detula. With the Fiskerful Lake now safe, Detula went out fishing one crisp spring morning. Spying on her from the other side of the Fiskerful Lake in the land of Slatifakur was the barbarian chief's son, Thandredred, who was 18 years old and looking for a barbarian bride of his own. Thandredred was of the belief that the strong took what they wanted when they wanted. He took a small boat out into the lake and demanded that Dutula marry him, for the women of Draugrfold were more fairer than those of Slatvakar. Dutula had told him that she was already promised to a strong viking who killed a sea terror snake. Thandredred laughed at this. For to him, killing a sea terror snake was an easy task for someone like him that had already killed a great white polar bear and a cave troll. Thunderchurd was furious when Detula refused his offer of marriage. To make matters worse, later that day, Thunderchurd spied Detula and Tigerger holding each other by the Fiskerfold Lake, and Tigerger was missing his left arm. This was blasphemous. No man is fit to be a barbarian if he is handicapped in any way. How could he protect Tula if he was missing an arm? The next few mornings, Thunderchurd was on the lake with his same offer of marriage. Each time, Tula declined, which only made him matter. Thunderchurd was so angry that he had to do something. You see, the new generation of Strangeland barbarians had either forgotten about the original agreement or they didn't care. It was during the wedding of Tigerger and Detula that Thandertred and the barbarians of Slatifakar pillaged Draugrfold, killing all the barbarians and burning the town. At first, the barbarians of Slatifakar didn't want to go to Draugrfold, for they believed the old tales their grandmas told them about the evil wolfman who lived there and killed barbarians who dared step a foot on his land. Thandertred convinced the barbarians that these were just tales. If they were true, then how could the Druskan barbarians live there? Those words convinced the people somewhat, but what really convinced them was his command that any barbarian who refused to go with him would be banished. Tagager and Detula were in the middle of their wedding when the barbarian ships came ashore. A loud blow from a ram's horn 
preceded the chaos of death. The barbarians from Slatvikar killed everyone that tried to defend themselves. The women were raped before being cut down. The children were the only ones given a quick death. Thunderchan knew that he couldn't take any slaves as they would remember what happened here and would grow up to seek revenge. Even though these were weaker barbarians, they were still barbarians. Even with one arm, Tagagar fought with a warrior spirit, for he was fighting to protect those he loved. He was able to cut down quite a few barbarians, but when Thunderchan showed up, it was only a matter of time before Tagagar met his doom. Perhaps, if Tagagur was not tired and had both arms, he might have stood a chance. But Thanditurd was too powerful, too experienced in the ways of war. Thanditurd cut off Tagagur's other arm and legs. Before he would allow him to die, he sliced off his eyelids so he could watch him rape and beat Datula. Once he had his fill, he stabbed Datula in the heart for breaking his heart. As he lay there dying... He cut off the head of Tagagur. Thus, in a moment of lust, anger, and jealousy, a tribe of barbarians were wiped off the face of Exavalon. After the barbarians left for Slatvikar, Verlaka, hearing the bloodshed and screams, and seeing the black smoke, decided to investigate. He came upon Yudur, the accursed, standing over Datula. Verlaka ran to Datula, knowing that Yudur was a truly wicked necromancer who was going to take advantage of her. Behind his wolf mask, Verlakai's eyes flashed red. He despised Yudur, but neither he nor his wolves were powerful enough to beat Yudur. As Verlakai walked up to Yudur, Tula rose from the ground as a newly reanimated cursed soul. Yudur was looking to make a cursed soul. A cursed soul is when a soul re-enters a reanimated body. A cursed soul is subject to the second death, the death of the soul. Yodr had no problems convincing Datula of becoming a cursed soul. With her last breath, she agreed to be reanimated in order to get her revenge on the barbarians. Unfortunately for her, as long as Yodr had power, she was under his command. He forbade her from getting revenge on the barbarians, and commanded her to stay in Dragafold until he told her to leave. Datula would often stand on the shores of the Fiskerful Lake, staring across at Slotvaker, wanting, wishing for the revenge that was so close, but never within her grasp. If anything good did come out of Datula standing on the shores, it was this. The barbarians of Slotvaker never went back to Dragafold and became deathly afraid of the Lady in White always watching, waiting for the right moment to get her revenge. That concludes my second tale, the history of Datula the Forever Maiden. Come back another night, and I will tell you about the history of the creation of Exavalon. Welcome to the stories of Exavalon. The Bard Who Brought Death if you have ever found yourself in a tavern or inn late at night and heard a bard with a black hood playing strange, hypnotic music and you are still among the living, then consider yourself lucky, for this is no ordinary bard. This bard is an assassin who, I believe, works for a powerful necromancer. I can't prove any of this. I have carefully followed the bard 
to prove he is an assassin, but have never found concrete evidence. Still, something inside me tells me that I am right. Let me start at the beginning, as I have plenty of time, for it is a long walk to the moldy tankard inn where the bard is playing tonight. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Kevin Bearston of Amenareha, a registered soldier in Gihorzom's army. At least I was until they excommunicated me for my obsession with this bard. I tried telling the Grand High Priest about this wicked bard and his necromancer master who needed to be stopped. The Grand High Priest laughed me off. He had the gift of discernment and knew that those cases where the entire tavern full of people died were from bad ale or rotten meat. It just so happened that the bard played at both of those places. The Grand High Priest reasoned that if the bard was killing people, then why weren't the people in other taverns he played at dead? In fact, the Grand High Priest had listened to the bard play the other night at the Rivers of Wine Tavern. When I argued that the bard wouldn't kill at all the taverns, and he definitely wouldn't kill at the Rivers of Wine Tavern, which one could only enter if they were invited, or important enough, like a higher up in the church or in the royal court, the Grand High Priest told me to drop it. Even if I had my suspicions, I should tell the royal guards and let them take the investigation over. I tried that, and they told me that they had more than enough to deal with. Unless I had actual evidence, then not to bother them again, else I might find myself in a dungeon. After the third tavern of people at the Timid Dwarf Tavern died, I grew frustrated at the church's and royal guards' lack of response. After I publicly criticized the church, they excommunicated me. I left Amenareha due to the shame of being excommunicated. I wasn't legally forced to leave, but my neighbors made it clear that it was best that I leave and not come back, which was fine by me. It has given me the chance to pursue my investigation into the bard. Once I proved he was killing these people, the church would have no choice but to welcome me back into full fellowship. Maybe I would get a special assignment and work closely with the Grand High Priest. Now I know what you are thinking. And no, I am not crazy or paranoid. To prove I am not, I will tell you why and how I know the bard is an assassin and why and how he is working for a necromancer. First, let me tell you how I first heard about this plot of wickedness. My brother is a farmer in Chorus, located in the Royal Lion Plains. One day when I was visiting him, he was telling me how that night a new bard was going to play at the Royal Lion Inn. He was supposed to be the next big thing. I would have stayed, but I needed to leave that afternoon on a church assignment. My brother, along with others from the village, went to the inn that night. It is not unusual for me not to hear from my brother for a few weeks, which is why we make it a point to visit each other um, every month. I typically visit him as his work as a farmer keeps him busy, which I don't mind. When I went to visit him the following month, his wife told me the sad news, that he had died last month. Apparently, the story she was told was that the ale had been poisoned by a thief who had been caught the next day. All who drank the ale had been killed. When I asked where they were holding the thief, she told me they killed him as soon as he confessed to the crime, which didn't take long. 
He was more than eager to confess once he was caught, she told me. Something about this didn't sit right with me, so I went to visit the Royal Lion Inn. When I talked with the owner, he told me the same story that my sister-in-law told me. The story seemed contrived, like he knew it wasn't the truth, but was too scared to tell me what really happened. The only honest information that he gave me was the name of the bard. The Abandoned Bard. When I asked for his real name, he didn't know. Just replied, that was the name he goes by. I went to other inns and taverns that the bard had played in, and I found that on every sixth night he plays, the crowd dies. Every time the crowd dies, there's always a scapegoat waiting to be caught the next day and willingly confesses to everything. They are quickly put to death so nobody can question them further. The reason I believe that this assassin is working with a necromancer is this. During my investigations, I went to the Golden Hook Tavern in the Spotted Fish Forest. On my journey there, I passed by Nairwood Castle, and while I was passing by the Stangahar Mountains, I saw my brother with a pickaxe entering a mine, along with other men. All the men, except the guards, looked dead. They were zombies, the undead. I knew it was my brother, but when I tried to go inside the mine, the guards stopped me, threatening me with life in the dungeon or death. I waited all day and night for the men to leave the mine, but they never did. The guards were the only ones who would leave the mine, and that was just to switch with the other guards. I went to the Golden Hook Tavern with plans on going back to the mine on my way back. By the time I made it back to the mine, they had sealed the entrance. When I asked the people in Nairwood Castle about it, they told me that a cave troll was spotted in the cave, so the king commanded it be sealed. I went around Nairwood asking about the miners, hoping somebody saw my brother, but everyone told me the same thing. The miners all left, and they had no idea where they were taken. Oh, I wish I would have searched for my brother. I was so close to him. But I reasoned, and I knew that if I caught this bard, then he would tell me where to find my brother. In the last few weeks, it has been harder to find the bard, as he has not played as many shows as he used to. But here I am now, at the Moldy Tankard Inn, for his sixth show after the last killing. This is it. I will know tonight if I am right. My plan is solid. I am not going to eat or drink anything tonight. No matter how much food I want, food and drink were the two things that killed everyone in the other cases. As long as I avoid those, I would understand the truth and live to tell it. The inn was crowded as I walked in. I found a small table in the back of the room. A busty barmaid handed me a large ale as I sat down. She smiled and told me it was on the house. The bard had already paid for everybody's drinks tonight for this was his last show for a while. I thanked her, but had no intention of drinking the poisoned ale. I proudly congratulated myself for being right. All these people who were greedily drinking their free ale were going to be dead soon. Did they know that this was their last hour? If they did, what could they do other than try to change fate's hand or beg for one more day of life? The moment the sun set, the bard sat down on a chair near the fireplace. He was greeted by loud applause. 
He lifted his hands in appreciation. He wore a black cloak with a hood up. When he sang, he kept his head down. But he was loud enough that you could clearly hear his words. As he played on, I wondered how long it would be until the poison took effect. So far, nobody had died. After his last song, the bard stood up and said, This is the last song you will hear tonight. I hope you enjoy. He strummed his instrument as he began. In the marsh of Ashnagan, I was born a bastard son. My mother washed her hands clean of me, selling me to the swamp people for a couple of copper coins. In vain they tried to sacrifice me to their god, Baron Samadhi. Instead of consuming me, Baron Samadhi blessed me with a gift of death. I could now kill anyone I want and turn them into my undead slaves. The swamp people worshipped me, yet I was unsatisfied with their worship. So in solitude I went, learning to play my instrument and sing these songs. Then the day came when I turned 18. It was time to let death reign again. The bar stopped playing. The crowd stood up and erupted in applause. The bard held up his hands to quiet the crowd. Once they quieted down, he pulled his hood back, revealing his half-human, half-skull face. He laughed as he said, Everyone who heard my tale will now die, but worry not. You will become undead slaves to the highest bidder. I tried to get up as the people in front of me collapsed table by table. I was wrong. He was not an assassin, nor was he working for a necromancer. He was a god of death. This has been Tales from Exavalon, including the history of Exavalon, the knights of Exavalon, and stories of Exavalon. Tales from Exavalon is written and produced by Misfit Kid Publishing, LLC, all rights reserved. I would like to take a moment to personally thank you for listening to Tales from Exavalon. I hope you have enjoyed these stories and I hope that you will come back to listen to the other stories that we will be producing. Thank you again, and may every day be an adventure.